This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org. You're listening to audio from one of our third Thursday webinars on Parkinson's research. In these webinars, expert panelists and people with Parkinson's discuss aspects of the disease and the foundation's work to speed medical breakthroughs. Learn more about the third Thursday webinars at michaeljfox.org webinars. Thanks for listening. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Third Thursday webinar from the Michael J. Fox Foundation. I'm Dave Iverson, a member of the Foundation's Patient Council, and I'm delighted to be able to moderate uh, today's webinar, which is going to focus on the immune system's role in Parkinson's disease. Let's meet who's going to be helping us um, walk through, I think, this really interesting topic today, the immune system and Parkinson's disease. We're joined by Dr. Jeff Brunstein. Uh, Jeff is the director of the Movement Disorders Program at UCLA and has been a leading researcher as well as clinician in the Parkinson's disease field for for many years. Jeff, welcome. Pleasure to have you join us today. Uh, Thanks, Dave. And joining us as well is Dr. Todd Scherer. Todd, of course, is the CEO of the Michael J. Fox Foundation and as such has a keen grasp of all that's going on in the Parkinson's research world and brings to this discussion his own background in neuroscience as well. Todd, thanks for being part of this. Thanks, Dave. I look forward to the discussion. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting one. So let's get started with some of the topics that we're going to be trying to cover today. We talk generally about the role of the immune system, um, both in health globally, but also uh, within disease, and particularly, of course, Parkinson's disease. And then we're going to talk some about the many connections that there are between Parkinson's and the immune system, which is intriguing. And then we'll talk uh, finally about how scientists are beginning to uh, work on ways to use the immune systems to either develop tests that could be a kind of biomarker, a way of discerning what's going on when someone has Parkinson's disease, or of course, as importantly, more importantly, really, uh, ways to harness the immune system to promote various therapies that would help us uh, contend with Parkinson's disease. So, Let's uh, begin our conversation. And I think it's useful, um, Jeff, and maybe as our, our resident MD, you can help us with this first uh, uh, definitional uh, question, which is really to talk a little bit, if you would, Jeff, about, about what the immune system is. We see that top bullet system, that it attacks organisms and substances that invade uh, the body. But just describe for us, if you would, what the immune system is there for. Sure. So uh, the immune system is is a very actually complex network of uh, of cells and tissues that are really there to um, help protect us against uh, basically foreign uh, organisms, and that may be like bacteria and viruses, but it also can be cancer cells and things like that. So it's there really to help identify things that are not self and then uh, help protect uh, the body from being invaded and and injured by it. Um, It's uh, involved in so many processes uh, uh, and is basically an essential part of life. Um, It could also go awry and uh, sometimes confuse uh, what's our self and what are foreign uh, entities, Uh, and that's when we have what we call autoimmune disease. And we'll so be we talking can... about that, and it's 
particular yeah. relationship to Parkinson's, right? Because that's one of the things, many things that intrigue researchers about this process, John. Absolutely. And so it can be very, very specific, uh, the immune system, and directed to very, very specific uh, molecules, but it also can be kind of in generally heightened um, and, uh, you know, kind of an inflammatory tone. You know, inflammation is when the whole immune system is activated. So uh, it's, it's sometimes important to try to differentiate that. And touch your, um, let's focus on the word Jeff just used for a moment, and we see that in that third bullet point on the screen, which is that inflammation is part of the immune response. And so it makes me want to ask this sort of basic question, Todd, which is whether or not inflammation is good or bad. Because when you hear the word inflamed, something is inflamed, it doesn't sound very good. And yet we also know that inflammation, as Jeff was describing, is part of the immune system's response. So we know inflammation is involved in, in Parkinson's. Can you dig into that a little bit more, Todd, about what inflammation actually is, good or bad, and how that connects up to Parkinson's in particular? Yeah, so I think this is where uh, Jeff was talking about how complex the situation is because this um, inflammation could be good or it could be bad depending on the the search circumstances and context to which it's it's happening. Um, so in Parkinson's disease, and I, I know we'll get into this a little bit more, there's evidence of inflammation and activated immune system, particularly in the immune system cells that function in the brain of Parkinson's patients um, or that function in the brain normally. So these are increased in the context of Parkinson's. So the inflammatory response could be playing um, multiple roles in the disease. Um, one in that it could be playing an exacerbating role or worsening in that this inflammation is causing more um, activation of processes that lead to uh, dis dysfunction of brain cells. But it also could be that the inflammation that comes in is, uh, is helping to repair um, damage that's happening in the brain. And that's part of the stage of research now is to try to better understand what really is happening in the context of Parkinson's and, and if there are certain things we should be aiming to try to reduce or, or or delay, and maybe there are certain aspects we're looking to to increase the the function of to have better repair of the brain. Go ahead, Jeff. What, what did you? Yeah, want I to just add? wanted to maybe expand a little bit on the um, the components, kind of the major components of the immune system. So we have some cells called B cells that actually make antibodies, and those are proteins that attack other proteins or other chemicals. So it's um, called humor immunity. There's also uh, T cells, which are actually cells that attack specific um, proteins in organisms, and so that's a cellular immunity. And then we have resident cells, um, and in the brain, those are called microglia, and those are cells that uh, live in the brain and, and kind of uh, roam around looking to help respond locally. There's also resident cells in the gut and in other tissues as well. So we tend to talk about the inflammatory response by reactions basically of these cells and chemicals that they release. And some of those, the microglia I know, and we'll talk about this more later, are, are part of what's intriguing in, in Parkinson's. And, it, and it, this ties into the question I was about to ask, which is the that this very fundamental question that we don't quite understand yet, right, um, Todd, that, that um, we don't really know whether the immune system and inflammation 
are the cause of a problem or, or, or whether they're a, a response or a consequence to the problem. There's this fundamental thing that you were starting to describe that's a kind of chicken and egg question that we really don't know the answer to right yet. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, I think this is one of the major areas of research involved in are currently focused on the immune system and inflammation in Parkinson's. We do know that there's evidence um, of an increased inflammatory response in Parkinson's disease, particularly in the brains of Parkinson's patients. Um, but we're still trying to really dissect out um, the various complex components, like Jeff was just referring to, to understand um, how much of the inflammatory response is contributing to either the onset of the disease or the progression of the disease um, versus whether there are aspects of the inflammatory response that's actually trying to um, help the body address the disease mechanisms and even, you know, delay or or um, overcome some of them. So this is really, I think, a very active area of research with, with great potential because there are a lot of ways that we could envision um, manipulating the body's immune system and inflammatory responses to try to promote perhaps the pro-survival components of this system and, and limit or mitigate some of the more uh, exacerbating um, aspects of the response. Well, let's dive in then next into um, uh, some of these these various factors that that um, uh, are intriguing with Parkinson's and how we might then respond to them. And Jeff, let me go to the the first item that that appears on on uh, the screen um, here next, which is this this connection between um, inflammation and uh, pesticide exposure and head injury, which we know are risk factors for Parkinson's. Now, you're someone who's done a lot of research in the area of pesticide exposure in the Central Valley of California in particular. So what are we learning from that? How does that, Jeff, intersect with this question of, of inflammation? So uh, as you you know, correctly stated, there's lots of, uh, of uh, data now to support that certain pesticides um, are associated with an increased risk of Parkinson's, and then the use of animal models have helped support causality, and I'd say the same thing is uh, true for head injury as well. And so when we're talking about it, we're talking about an increased risk. Now, when we go to animal models and we expose them to these pesticides that are associated with a higher risk, or if we uh, do a head trauma model in animals, you see the resident inflammatory cells, the microglia in the brain, become active and they start secreting cytokines, and they, and we think that that may be contributing to the damage because if you block that inflammatory response or you you suppress it uh, during exposures, um, it seems to lessen the damage of both the head trauma and mm. the, the pesticide exposure. Uh, it doesn't prove it by any means because these animal models all have their limitations, but it's a clue that uh, at least mm. some of the mechanisms by which pesticides and, and head trauma can increase uh, the risk of Parkinson's is by starting this inflammatory response. 
And, te- and Jeff, let me interrupt real quick to ask then that that seems an area then that could be ripe with possibilities for a possible intervention or, or therapy, right? So, you, I mean, because it sounds like you're suggesting it may be that if we could, even if someone's been exposed to something that's harmful, be that an injury or, or a pesticide, that if we could stop the response to that, that inflammatory response, we might limit the degree to which uh, Parkinson's either takes place or, or progresses. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why there's so much interest in the research field, because it is something that is, um, it's a it's a real potential target. And we get some clues from our epidemiology as well. Um, I, it's lower on the slide, but it's probably apropos to this discussion, is that we know that at least by epidemiologic studies, uh, the vast majority of them has shown people that take a lot of anti-inflammatory medications like ibuprofen, um, they seem to have a lower risk of Parkinson's disease. And hmm. so um, it's a suggestion. Now, I don't want to say you should start taking them. Uh, this was uh, tried in Alzheimer's, which is a very similar uh, sort of picture with inflammation, and uh, when people started taking anti-inflammatories to try to slow Alzheimer's at a higher risk of heart disease, actually, and heart attack. So we really need to, when we start thinking about modulating the inflammatory system, safety is a really important aspect of that. So I don't want people to start taking these things for that purpose uh, without coming up with uh, without a lot more studies. But it is a yeah. real yeah. area ripe for targets for treatment. And, and another area, Todd Shera, that's ripe with interest and perhaps a target as well is that third point that I want to get to, which is the, the role of the microbiome and, and gut bacteria and how that might impact uh, Parkinson's and the immune uh, response. We're already getting a number of questions on this. Deborah just wrote in, can we improve our gut flora to help our immune system. There's a lot of interest in this, Todd. So can you tell us what we know and what we don't know about that relationship between what's going on in the gut and inflammation that might impact the brain as well? Yeah, this is a a relatively new area for Parkinson's disease, but getting, as as you're mentioning, quite a lot of interest um, where we do know, for example, that Parkinson's patients can have a number of symptoms outside of the motor symptoms, um, and one one that's common is uh, digestive issues, and there's even some data that suggests that the digestive problems can predate the onset of the motor symptoms. So there's now an increasing interest in um, understanding that gut-brain axis and the interactions between um, what might be happening in the gut and the uh, impact those can have on on the neural function. Um, And there have been some recent studies that have looked at the microbiome, and the microbiome is the the way the scientists refer to the the bacteria that's living within your within your body and your gut, um, and have found that there there may be differences in the microbiome when you compare a Parkinson's patient to somebody without Parkinson's. Um, so there's a lot of work now being done to follow up on that to understand what might be the biological impact of the differences in microbiome. And there have been some interesting animal studies recently that have shown that. Um, the impact of the Parkinson's disease microbiome um, can be seen in the nervous system, meaning that those animals are showing some deficits in the neuronal function just if they're exposed to the 
the uh, disease microbiome. Um, but this is still a real active area um, to understand kind of how would you then, what would you do to try to convert the microbiome and what would be kind of quote unquote a good microbiome to have. Um, but this is definitely getting a lot of very significant um, interest now in the research community um, because of a lot of this data that I just uh, reviewed. And as with the point, Todd, that Jeff was making about, you know, we see it epidemiologically this relationship between people who take a lot of um, uh, anti-inflammatories like ibuprofen seem to have a lower risk of, of Parkinson's, yet we don't know enough yet to advise people to do that. People understandably always want to know, well, what can I do here? What can I do that would, that would either help my immune system be stronger or, or react in some ways that would be helpful in terms of Parkinson's? Again, to Deborah's question, is, do we know anything yet about whether we can do anything with our own gut and our own microbiome that would be useful in this regard? Or is this, again, a, a too soon to tell kind of question? Well, I think um, it's still way really early in this research to really give conclusive um, recommendations. But we do know that in general, people that eat a high fiber diet with a lot of fresh fruits and vegetables and nuts, kind of the Mediterranean diet, tend to have what people think of as an anti-inflammatory microbiome, one that um, may be a bit healthier um, and so, and we know that that's healthy for heart disease and stroke um, and probably Parkinson's as well. So eating a really healthy diet does, uh, is the most important uh, way of establishing what we think of as a healthy microbiome, the best we can describe that. Um, and those are called prebiotics. So taking a lot of probiotics doesn't seem to change it very much, but prebiotics, what you feed the bacteria make a difference. So I do recommend to my patients to eat a, a really healthy diet. Um, it may be through the microbiome. It may be anti-inflammatory. It may not be, but we know people have died less of heart disease and, and other things with it. So it's, it's obviously an important, um, important thing you can do for your health. And maybe it's through the microbiome. And, and back to you, Todd Scherer, on, on the other point we want to touch on here, because we're so interested, I think, in Parkinson's research these days, between these connections that, that might lead us to underlying links and, and causes. And so there's this interesting connection between um, uh, the risk uh, for Parkinson's um, and inflammatory bowel disease, as well as hepatitis C. And you see that, and you think, what in the world do it? What does you know? What in the world do inflammatory bowel disease, hepatitis C, hepatitis C, and and Parkinson's disease have in common? So that's the question, Todd. What do, what do they have in common, and what intrigues you as a researcher about that link? Yeah. So I think this just to, to kind of restate the finding, which is a, another epidemiological finding, um, where uh, it was found that uh, individuals who had inflammatory bowel disease or had exposure to hepatitis C um, were seen to have a greater risk of getting Parkinson's. Um, and this is interesting for a lot of the reasons we've been talking about, that the main characteristics of these diseases are 
this unusual or abnormal inflammatory response or immune cell function. Um, so there is an overlap, perhaps, of some of the underlying biology of what might be triggering these diseases um, along with Parkinson's. Now, this is still a association, epidemiology, um, and it just has to do with the risk. But one thing particularly that was interesting in, in a recent paper in inflammatory bowel disease was a, fi a finding that individuals who had that disease and were also treated with a particular um, anti-inflammatory therapy, it seemed to reverse the risk, meaning that they their increased risk of getting Parkinson's was now reduced. So that mm. is pretty interesting, again, to point um, additional evidence to a, a role early in disease of, of immune cell function in Parkinson's. And Todd, I hope I'm not venturing um, off off base here, but is there also isn't there also a, a link between uh, LARC2, LRRK2 uh, mutation, which puts one at greater risk for Parkinson's, and to inflammatory bowel disease? And if I'm right about that, is that also something that's intriguing? Yeah, this is particularly interesting in that some of the genetic risk factors for Parkinson's um, are found in this gene you mentioned, LERC2, and in a separate study looking at inflammatory bowel disease, it was found that uh, different um, genetic risk factors, but all within the gene for LERC2, um, do seem to be linked to inflammatory bowel disease as well. So this, again, is pointing to perhaps a commonality of some of the underlying biology across these diseases, and also giving new information on what may be an important role for LERC2, um, where while it's a gene that causes uh, an increased risk for Parkinson's, perhaps some of its function in causing that risk is actually in the immune system and not in the brain cells directly. Mm -hmm. And that is you know, particularly interesting in kind of understanding um, what might be some of the causal factors in Parkinson's disease. So this is an area that's gotten a lot of interest um, as well, particularly around LERC2, LERC2 function in the immune system, and how that might be contributing to the onset of Parkinson's. Yeah, fascinating. Let's um, take this a step further then and begin to think about how this, all that we've been talking about, all of these, these common denominators and, and linkages may lead us to greater insights into Parkinson's research and hopefully treatment. So, um, Jeff Bronstein, when we, when we talk about this, one of the things that we talk about first are our, our perpetual pursuit for a biomarker in Parkinson's disease, a way of both detecting the disease's presence early on, but also measuring what's going on with the disease as it progresses. And so, we see this first point on this next slide about whether or not this might be a way that we could further test for Parkinson's. And is that because you could do literally a kind of blood test where you could measure some of those cells you were talking about earlier, T cells or whatever? Is that is that what we're thinking here, that this could lead us to a way of better measuring what's going on with the disease? Uh, that's the hope. We're not there yet. But there's some interesting um, early studies to suggest that it's possible. So, for example, there was a, a nice study out of New York which showed that the, the certain T cells, those cellular immunities, seem to recognize uh, alpha-synuclein, the protein that aggregates and clumps up in Parkinson's disease. They seem to recognize that. So there are assays looking for that and see would that help us predict who uh, to determine who has it, 
who doesn't, or even direct the type of therapy we have. That's one possibility. Uh, so it's a very specific, targeted type of test that we uh, might be able to develop. Uh, another one may be more like heart disease, where you have, um, there's a thing called C-reactive protein, uh, CRP, where when that's high, it means your risk for getting a heart attack and atherosclerosis is uh, is uh, a bit elevated. And... Um, and so now CRP doesn't seem to be that marker for Parkinson's, but is there a general marker of inflammation that may be useful in adjusting risks? Uh, so I think there's um, both specific and non-specific ways that this could help us either diagnose or help us um, determine the risk of getting Parkinson's disease. And Dave, just to add to that, there also are um, a number of efforts looking at brain imaging markers for neuroinflammation um, that are also being hmm. developed to try to see if we can actually detect uh, an inflammatory response in a living person's brain um, to also both uncover insights into the disease and perhaps be a marker like Jeff was just referring to, to help target people correctly for therapy based on that immune response. And that's also um, an active area of, of development for biomarkers related to inflammatory. No, I'm glad you brought that up, Todd, because we, we on one of the earlier slides, there's a reference that says that, you know, the, that within people who have Parkinson's disease, there's evidence of, of inflammation in the brain tissue. But that's always, that's postmortem. To date, we haven't had the ability to actually see what's going on with an inflammatory response in someone who's still alive. And, and so this is part of that continuing quest, Todd, to be able to image uh, Parkinson's better in the brain? That's that's correct. And it's to, you know, even get more insight into some of these early features of um, where, where, when, when and where the immune system may be playing a role in the disease um, to uncover kind of that original question around the chicken and egg on how active is this early in disease versus as the disease is progressing. So we need better tools, both the brain imaging and a lot of the tools that um, Jeff was just referring to, to really understand that over the course of the disease so we can get a better sense for um, the role the immune system is playing and how and when we might want to intervene with a therapy. We're going to talk in a moment about, about alpha-synuclein in more detail and the way in which the immune system is engaged in that. Um, so we'll hold a little bit and talk in more detail about the way the immune system might be helpful in, in uh, harnessing that immune system to fight the buildup of that sticky protein alpha-synuclein. But, but generally speaking, um, Jeff, is there the thought that there's, we, we, we know something, as, as I think you said before, about how to manipulate the immune system. So does that mean that we could use the immune system, not just with alpha-synuclein, as we'll be talking about in a second, but in a variety of ways as, as a way to, to further Parkinson's treatments? Yeah, that's the hope, whether we um, uh, want to target alpha-synuclein specifically, as this slide shows, and we can talk about that, or we might um, have more general sorts of things, and we talked about the microbiome, and we made it, you know, may, it's possible that a certain microbiome is going to be more favorable, so we may target the immune system by targeting uh, just the bacteria in our gut which is a possibility. So that's a less specific way of doing things, or it can be very specific uh, using specific antibodies or T cells 
to help uh, clear the pathology. And, and so, Jeff, now let's transition into alpha-synuclein a bit. I'll ask Todd in a moment to go through where we are on the various clinical trials with alpha-synuclein. But tell us something, Jeff Bronstein, about, about how this might work. Is this an example of where we think we know the sticky protein builds up in Parkinson's, where our immune system might react to it the way they react to anything that goes amiss in the, in the body and, and fight against that, that um, um, sticky buildup. How might, if you would, describe for us how the immune system might target alpha-synuclein? Right. So we know for certain that if you make too much alpha-synuclein in your brain, you get Parkinson's disease. We know this from genetic studies um, and in animal studies as well. So um, we know when you make too much, it it forms these aggregates or oligomers, these clumps, and that can be toxic. And so um, one of the uh, strategies, and uh, one that's furthest along that Todd can talk about, is by developing antibodies, which are proteins, that can attack that. And that basically tells the immune system, let's get rid of this. And so can you prevent the accumulation and the spread of the alpha-synuclein from neuron to neuron. Now, a lot of these concepts have actually been developed in, in other diseases like Alzheimer's disease. And uh, there's a, a big inflammatory reaction in the brain in Alzheimer's disease. And they're actually fairly far along to at least show that um, at least some of these antibodies um, can actually clear the protein in Alzheimer's disease. Um, and so that's uh, one of the ways that we uh, hope to do this in Parkinson's disease. In, in other studies, like in cancers and, and hopefully in Parkinson's, you can actually hopefully uh, uh, manipulate the T cells or cellular immunity to, to do the same, the same thing. Uh, it's not quite as far along in Parkinson's disease, but both are, are very exciting strategies. And they're exciting for me because when I think of you know, the 25 years I've been in the field, all of the studies to stop the progression um, of the disease have really been based on kind of oxidative stress, very nonspecific things. But we've learned so much in the last 15 or 20 years about the the mechanisms by which we get Parkinson's and the brain gets damaged. And this is one of the earliest treatments that really is focusing in, in my opinion, on the the underlying pathology. So it's really exciting for that. To me, it's a whole it's a whole new way of approaching the disease. Well, let's see where we are then in that quest. And we're putting up on the on the um, slides now a review of, of a number of of the key studies that are trying to use this immunotherapy approach to getting after that sticky protein so that the immune system and antibodies would recognize that as something amiss and begin to attack it or, or break it down. And we see Todd Scherer on this slide that we're getting further along. We're inching towards phase three, which means that we're inching towards really learning whether or not some of these, these, tr these treatment ideas can work. You don't have to go through each one of them, Todd, but, but give us sort of your big picture look at where we are now in this pursuit of trying to figure out a way to use an immunotherapy approach uh, to attacking alpha-synuclein buildup and the progression of Parkinson's. Yeah, so this is actually to 
echo what, what uh, Jeff was just saying, a very exciting um, time in terms of the robustness of the approaches looking to develop treatments um, utilizing immune-based therapy uh, to target alpha-synuclein. And there's two main kind of general approaches that are being used. You see here that there's a few that are labeled antibody and one that says vaccine. Um, in the case of the ones that are labeled antibody, what these um, uh, approaches have done and these companies have done is genetically engineered in the laboratory an antibody with selectivity towards um, alpha-synuclein with the idea of then injecting that antibody into individuals so that the antibody will help um, direct the immune system to degrade the aggregated forms and pathological forms of, of, of alpha-synuclein in Parkinson's. Um, in the vaccine approach, it's a slightly different approach, and this is more what you would think about with um, other vaccines you may um, have gotten, where the company has genetically engineered a pathological form of alpha-synuclein, um, kind of the equivalent of when you get a vaccine and they inject the, a dead virus into your body, and then your body mounts its own immune system uh, response, developing its own activated cells and antibodies towards that synthetic, uh, genetically engineered form. And then the hope is that that, those, uh, that response within your body will go and find the um, alpha-synuclein aggregates present in the disease. Um, and just to give a summary of where these are, these have now moved through the initial, obviously, laboratory testing, um, and um, a number of them have moved through the phase one testing, which is really focused on initial safety um, as well as some biological outcomes to see whether injecting these antibodies uh, is really having an effect on alpha-synuclein. And two of them have now moved into very robust phase two testing, which will give an insight not only into more around the biology impact of these antibodies, um, but also an initial indication of whether we think there's an impact on the disease. Um, and these are active, very active now. And I think what's exciting is not only that they moved ahead, if you look at the on the left side here, it's some uh, recognizable names of pharmaceutical and biotech companies like Roche and Biogen and AstraZeneca. So these are very ser serious and significant um, companies that are involved in Parkinson's around these approaches, which of course is, is really exciting because it'll take great resources to move these all the way across to the finish line. And, and then seeing that there's multiple shots on goal, so all of our eggs are not just in the basket of one antibody, I think is also very encouraging. So, so this is a, a very robust time for this, a lot going on, and obviously uh, we're doing all we can to make them move through these phases um, successfully and as quickly as we possibly can. No, I think it's incredibly exciting, and it's, of course, a, a first um, that we're, we're that far along with a, a possible therapy that could impact the progression of Parkinson's disease. I want to move us on now to our, our just general questions and answers because there have been lots that are coming in, and, and I want to make sure that we do um, respond to them and come back and review anything that hasn't been clear that people participating in today's webinar would, would like us to discuss. Um, but let me start with this uh, question, um, Tanshir, back to you again. We see all this progress that you were just describing with uh, the um, alpha-synuclein trials. Is there anything starting to brew with any other kind of 
immunotherapy approach. In other words, you were saying before that there's this intriguing connection perhaps between the LORC2 mutation that can lead one to be at risk for Parkinson's, but also may play a role in inflammatory responses. We're starting now some trials with our two drugs. Are any of those focused on this inflammatory idea? I'm just curious about what else may be in the pipeline uh, that would connect the dots between Parkinson's and, and the immune system or an inflammatory response. Yeah, so I think there's two, two ways I'll kind of go about answering this. One is that there are trials starting for LERC2 inhibitors in Parkinson's. There also are active trials uh, targeting another gene in Parkinson's, which is called GBA. Um, and in both those cases, some of the biological impact of those genes um, is through the immune system. Um, one of the things that, of course, uh, is very um, scientifically interesting and, and challenging in terms of the mechanisms of Parkinson's is that a lot of these different mechanisms are interrelated. So if a, um, a person ha in an animal study, I should say, in animal studies or laboratory studies, if there is an, an induction of an immune response or inflammation, that could lead to alpha-synuclein aggregation. And alpha-synuclein aggregation can actually lead to an increased inflammatory response. So with some of these therapies that I'm mentioning, like the LERC2s and the GBAs, what we're trying to do is intervene in this sort of pathological cycle that happens between some of the underlying pathways that are impacting in Parkinson's. So these trials, LERC2 is earlier, probably phase one. The GBA studies are in um, phase one, phase two. There are also a number of more preclinical studies, uh, preclinical projects still in the laboratory, where there are therapeutic approaches actually looking very specifically at some of the neuroinflammatory processes themselves to see if you could either enhance or limit those processes based on the hypothesis. So that is active, active in Alzheimer's, and some of those are now being um, developed for Parkinson's as well. You know, the longer I've been associated with the foundation and, and with this um, question of, of solving the Parkinson's riddle, it, it seems to me it's, it's all about connecting the dots. And I, I just help, can't help but feeling in a, in a very enthusiastic way that we're getting uh, that much closer um, to connecting some of these, these dots. So it is truly an, an exciting time, I think. Um, let's get to all of your um, uh, questions. And, and um, Jeff Bronstein, let me uh, get this question to you from Tom. Since you mentioned the word uh, prebiotics earlier, Jeff, uh, Tom wants to know what's the difference between probiotics and prebiotics? and how that impacts the microbiome and Parkinson's. So, um, so it, the way I think about it is prebiotics are basically the foods that the bacteria feed on. So when you eat stuff, you're not just feeding yourself, you're feeding the bacteria in your gut. And probiotics are actually the bacteria themselves. So that you can eat a lot of bacteria and probiotics. There's capsules and there's yogurts that all have um, bacteria in them, live bacteria. And the idea is, if you there are some that are, that might be better than others, and if you eat billions of them, that that's going to take resident in your gut and affect. Um, you know, the level of inflammation and immunity. 
where prebiotics are really the things that you feed them. And there's not there's there's a fair amount of research out there uh, basically about how do you try to change the the microbiome and i think um you know the consensus is is that uh prebiotics are probably the more important part of it that's it so you can you know feed your gut all the bacteria you want but if it doesn't have the preferred food source for the ones that are good then uh you're not going to be able to maintain those so um again soluble fibers are really good uh lots there's lots of things in fruits and vegetables and things like that are really good prebiotics so we think that's the better way uh uh, to uh, establish a healthy microbiome. Um, it may be difficult to move the microbiome. I think there's a lot of evidence that, um, mm. you know, it's established early in life. And so um, so there's a lot of work that needs to be done in that field. Uh, but overall, you know, I think the research supports a healthy diet. I think it's non-controversial. You can't lose with that. Um, but exactly why that is good for you, we're not sure. Mm-hmm. And, and touch here, here's a, a smart question about um, how antibodies make it past the blood-brain barrier. This is an age-old question in, in uh, treatments um, for Parkinson's and other diseases, of course, as well. So briefly, Todd, a description, if you would, of, of the blood-brain barrier and then how the antibodies get past that. Yeah, so the, the blood-brain barrier is a um, uh, an existing well, a system within the brain that limits exposure to the brain to um, pathogens and certain other uh, compounds that are in the blood. It's really to protect the brain from being fully exposed to everything like infections or other pathogens that are in the blood. But the body has specific mechanisms to get uh, things, nutrients and, and other things that the, blood, the brain needs from the blood. So it's a controlled process. Um, and more, normally serves a protective function for the for the body. Um, it is a challenge for neurological drug development because it can also limit exposure to the brain of a lot of the therapeutic chemicals or compounds that we're developing. Um, and there's a lot of work that goes into designing these uh, drugs to get across the blood-brain barrier and into the brain. Um, it is actually somewhat of a mystery how the antibodies, um, particularly these therapeutic antibodies, get across the blood-brain barrier and into the brain. It's a very small percentage um, of the antibodies that do get into the brain, but there is clear evidence from animal studies and also some recent clinical studies that these antibodies are getting into the brain. So there is a lot of work being done to try to see if you could genetically engineer the antibodies in a way that will increase their exposure um, into the brain, and it really has to be dealt with with the dosing of the antibodies and how frequently you give the antibodies at this point to get enough into the brain to have the impact that you want. And that's still um, one of the questions with these therapies is can that be achieved? Thank you, Todd. Um, Jeff, a number of questions about people being interested for understandable reasons in, in boosting uh, their immune system or doing things that would be anti-inflammatory. And this gets into the question you were saying before, we don't know yet enough about, you know, taking, having, advising people to take ibuprofen, but 
People want to know, are there other things they can do to boost their immune system? That's part one of the question. Part two is, what about things like statins? Do they have an anti-inflammatory response? So um, help us with those two, if you would, um, uh, Jeff. Are there other things you can do to boost your immune system? And what about statins and their anti-inflammatory impact? So the first one's a little bit harder um, I, I, don't, I wouldn't even say boost the immune system because, as we talked about, the immune system can be good and bad, um, yeah. depending on uh, on the aspect. So, how can you optimize or have a healthy immune system? And I think right now, besides a lot of the very basic uh, things that we we attribute to good health, like a healthy diet, good night's sleep, mindfulness. All of these things seem to um, help with a more stable immune system. I mean, I think there are plenty of of, uh, of uh, examples in medicine when people are overstressed, how their immune system is more vulnerable and people get sick, whether they don't sleep enough, you get a cold. Um, uh, people that are grieving are more at risk of cancer and other things. So I think stress, um, you know, physical and emotional stress are also things that likely contribute uh, to a less than optimal immune system. So the basics, a good diet, a good sleep, um, uh, and reducing stress um, are probably the key components that, that we know of right now that we know are effective. Uh, regarding uh, medications, um, so just like we were talking about uh, epidemiologic studies with anti-inflammatories, there are similar studies. We found that a number of people have found that people taking statins, things that lower cholesterol, uh, are associated with a lower risk. Um, it's a little less clear, uh, number one, um, whether it's a cause and effect. So it might be that people with very high cholesterol are at an alter, at, uh, the high cholesterol alters risk and we're just seeing uh, a signal because people with high cholesterol tend to take statins or could the statins actually be reducing the risk specifically? Uh, so we don't know that answer for sure. Um, there is some evidence that the statins might be helpful specifically, and one of the ways that statins have been proposed to help is by being anti-inflammatory. There are obviously other things, hmm. like we were talking about GBA and LERC2, is everything's interrelated. Um, so there are some small studies that have gone on looking at the statins and progression of disease, uh, but I think it's too soon to, to recommend any of these things. And speaking of kind of interrelationships and, and connections, here's here's another one, Todd, that uh, shared that maybe you can pick up, and that's whether or not any of these immunotherapies work for um, Parkinson's-related conditions, things like multiple system atrophy or Lewy body uh, dementia. And we don't focus on those conditions enough, I think we all feel. And so it's a, it's a good question. And it also speaks to, you, you both have referenced how we've learned from the Alzheimer's field. So are these immunotherapies taught something that could cut across these, these different diseases and be helpful to some of these other conditions as well? Yes, I'm glad. Thanks for the question. So in the, particularly the ones we talked about today that with the, uh, Immunotherapies are being developed to focus on alpha-synuclein aggregates. Um, theoretically, these um, therapeutic approaches could have an impact 
across a spectrum of diseases that are marked by alpha-synuclein aggregates or what are called as synucleinopathies. So a disease that, like you mentioned, Lewy body disease, um, Lewy bodies in that disease are, are also composed of alpha-synuclein aggregates. So um, in, in a, theoretically, if the antibody or the immunotherapy is helping the, the body get rid of the alpha-synuclein aggregates, it could have implications across a number of these diseases. Um, there is some nuance um, in these that the aggregates may not be exactly the same in all these diseases, particularly in diseases like MSA, the aggregates are found more in glial cells in the brain than neuronal cells. But I still think that this general approach um, should have application across these diseases uh, because the goal of what the therapy is trying to accomplish um, is incredible not only to the underlying pathology in Parkinson's, but the underlying pathology of these related um, diseases as well. And Jeff, here's another kind of connection question that, that someone's raising. Arnold raises the question, um, are people who are on immunosuppressors, so he's referencing someone who, you know, has a transplant, for example, are they more or less likely to have Parkinson's? And has that question been addressed in epidemiology? So um, the answer is, uh, you know, possibly. And so I think uh, Todd had mentioned earlier the inflammatory bowel disease uh, study where there was, there seemed to be some reduction. So if you think about when people have inflammatory bowel disease, they may have a, a twice the increased risk. So it's we're, we have to put perspective here. So it's not like if you have inflammatory bowel disease, you're very likely going to get Parkinson's disease. Your risk goes up one to two percent. So it it mm -hmm. teaches us mm -hmm. something, but the absolute increase in risk is relatively small, which is the real challenge in doing epidemiology is you need a lot of people then to start slicing it up, people that have inflammatory bowel disease and are on this treatment versus those on inflammatory bowels and no treatment or other treatment. So it gets very, very difficult to study. So that's the reason why there's really a lack of good data to support that. There is a little bit in that one study that Todd recommended, but it uh, referred to. But then again, in that study, what they were showing was that people that were on the treatment had back to a normal risk. So it reduced the increased risk. So whether being on one of these treatments for somebody who doesn't have an increased risk, whether that lowers it, um, we have no idea. And these treatments can be very serious. Now, when people have transplants and all these other things, they tend to be, you know, have a lot of other illnesses. So it becomes very, very difficult to, to do these studies. And um, so there just aren't good data on that. And there may not be on this next question, uh, Jeff, but, I'm, but I'll ask it of you anyway, <laughs> which is because people are making all these really interesting connections, I think. Um, and one is, is if you have an autoimmune uh, disease, that impacts likelihood of Parkinson's. And then similarly, what about uh, prednisone? Could that delay progression in Parkinson's? Because prednisone is something that's often used in autoimmune diseases. Is that right, Jeff? So just sort your way through that. <laughs> well, so the first one's pretty easy as there's very little evidence out there that autoimmune disease in general, I mean, there's a lot of different immune diseases and they're different. 
So inflammatory bowel disease, there, there is um, the evidence that's recent that came out with that. Um, I'm not aware of many for like lupus, which is another common one, or rheumatoid, um, uh, whether they are not. I'm not sure there's there, there's not a lot of data out there, and um, the, it's not a huge my guess is it's not a huge influence because uh, we don't. If you don't see a signal, um, it's it, it might be a small influence, and we're just missing it. Drugs like prednisone are um, are very effective in the short run, but they're very toxic in the long run. And I think that's something that we have to think about with. Um, any of these treatments, you know, people already have, you know, pretty close to a normal lifespan when you have Parkinson's disease. So if you get the disease in your early 60s, whatever treatment we have, you're likely going to be on it for 20, 30 years. And so we have to think about the safety in the long run. Being on prednisone for 20 or 30 years, I guarantee, you know, you're almost certainly going to have many more problems from the prednisone than you would from Parkinson's disease. Hmm. So all of these treatments to modulate the immune system really, uh, for the long run, um, there's a lot of very, very important safety issues to, to, to keep in mind. These drugs for inflammatory bowel disease uh, make you very susceptible to infections, um, and certain ones are very difficult to treat. Um, certain viruses, we know, we modulate the immune system. One autoimmune disease is multiple sclerosis, and people can get um, life-threatening viruses being on these these treatments um, that suppress the immune system. So we have to be very careful. It's a complex system. Uh, anybody who tries to study it, you know, your head goes crazy with all the different interconnections. It's <laughs> extremely complicated. And trying to uh, manipulate it in a way that does more good than damage is, uh, is a daunting task. So we have to be... Uh, um, uh, humble when we start trying to manipulate the immune system uh, for a chronic disease like this. One more question, and then I'll ask you both to kind of for some some summary um, uh, thoughts. And, and uh, Todd, this is a, a question from uh, Babak who who asks: um, Is the immune system different? Do we know if the immune system is different in someone with Parkinson's? Do they respond differently to other uh, invaders in the body, or does it make you more prone to certain kinds of, of infections? Um, so, what, um, what what can you tell us about whether we know anything about whether someone with Parkinson's has their immune system in some way fundamentally altered? Yeah, so this is, a, I mean, it's a great question that's, you know, the details are still being analyzed um, very significantly. So we do believe that there's some evidence to suggest that the immune system does respond differently in Parkinson's than someone without Parkinson's. And one of the examples is this recent discovery, um, and Jeff, I believe, referenced this um, this information earlier on the call, where um, people with Parkinson's, are their immune system is responding differently to exposure to an alpha-synuclein um, than someone without Parkinson's. They might have a heightened response. Some of the cells uh, get activated in a different way um, than someone without Parkinson's. Huh. Um, so this is still being dissected and, and you know, as we're still trying to understand the immune system, that's still part of the challenge. But I, I and I think the other question, which we've touched on a few times, is what's sort of the cause and effect of this? Is the 
reason the immune system is different lead to the onset of Parkinson's? Or is it sort of once you have Parkinson's, your body is responding differently to certain um, certain things. So this is an open question. There's some initial data suggesting there there is differences. I mean, we have that data, for example, in the postmortem of brain showing a more activated microglia in people with Parkinson's that, again, would suge suggest some kind of heightened response um, or a differential response. But this still needs to be uh, worked out. And it might be helpful. I don't know if Jeff wants to comment a little bit about the kind of ex infection um, from a medical perspective, if people with Parkinson's, how they respond to the flu or other things they might be exposed to um, before we end Yeah, this. there's really, yeah, I don't think there's any good evidence that's specifically different in that way. So I think mm -hmm. uh, people respond pretty similarly uh, in general let, to infections. Let me, let me ask you both then just for some, some quick sum up thoughts, a minute or so each, if you would. I think we've talk about a lot of fascinating interconnections in the field and, and the way in which the immune system may, in fact, you know, connect some of those those dots. So um, obviously an exciting area of, of research. And, and so to you each last, um, Jeff, you indicated this earlier, but come back to that if you would and sum up for us why you find this area of, of, of research so intriguing, it's harnessing the, the immune system or an immunotherapy approach in a way that could really get at um, uh, the, this perennial quest to, to break down and, and limit the progression of Parkinson's. So the reason why I'm excited is it seems to be another possible piece of the puzzle. And the way I envision, you know, therapy in the future, um, and we're already moving towards that, is really more of a personalized medicine. So I think Todd already mentioned targeting GBA and LARC2. It's some of the very early ways of targeting genetic forms of Parkinson's disease. But I think the more we understand about that individual's per, uh, Parkinson's disease, we may direct therapy specifically to them. So there may be people that have a very altered microbiome. Uh, we may want to target their microbiome. And if we can measure that, we can get a better understanding of what's going on in the immune system in that person. We may measure T cells. We may measure, uh, you know, even the proteins in the brain and neurodegenerative disease through PET scans. So the more we understand all these different pieces, um, the more we're going to be able to personalize and target uh, treatment for that individual. And I think the immune system um, is one, maybe one of those big pieces that we need to understand to be able to target it. So I think it's exciting. Jeff, thank you. Todd, last thoughts. Um, the only thing I would add to what Jeff just said, because I agree completely, is that um, why I'm excited about this is that it's interesting scientifically, but it's also actionable. So it's, it's science that there's good... Mm -hmm. um, evidence from other inflammatory diseases that you can convert some of this information actually into therapies, and it's starting to happen now with the examples we gave from Sinuclin. So I think it's a great example of kind of that investment in the basic research now getting to a stage where we can move on it to actually develop new treatments, and I think that's what's um, particularly exciting to me. 
Dr. Todd Scherer, CEO of the Michael J. Fox Foundation, Dr. Jeff Bronstein, who leads the Movement Disorders Program at UCLA. Um, thank you both uh, so very much uh, for your participation today and, of course, for the ongoing work you do in our field. Um, I want to thank everyone for participating in our webinar. I always find these um, so uh, useful. Uh, I learned so much from doing them. We hope that's your experience as well. As always, we want to encourage you to participate in Parkinson's research by uh, going through our, our FOX uh, trial finder uh, system to match up with a clinical study in your area. And a, a reminder, too, that you can always uh, participate or, or rather watch previous webinars by going to our website, michaeljfox.org slash webinars. Thanks again, everyone. I'm Dave Iverson. This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org.